Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 486 with Fred Castellucci. You know, people are inspired when they believe that their work matters to others. So how can we create staff and, a, and a, you know, a kitchen and dining room team that is somehow connected to work that matters? Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What's sorcery? Sorcery is AP automation, digital invoicing, time and money saved. That's Sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire accounts payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call 1-866-830-0691. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you will receive 10% off your first three months with no setup fees. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval see terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest federico casalucci federico my man are you feeling unstoppable today Absolutely, brother. Yeah. So Federico Castellucci III has been working in the restaurant business his entire life, holding his first job as an 11-year-old in a bakery in Rhode Island. Soon after, as a teenager, he began working in the family business, holding various roles in the kitchen, including cook and kitchen manager, before heading to Cornell University, where he studied hospitality management. Today, he has taken over the family business and serves as president and CEO of Castellucci Hospitality Group. And... uh. They're operating six unique concepts and locations all together. Clearly, we're just scraping the surface. I can't wait to dive into your story to find out who you are and what you're all about. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Success quote or mantra? Uh, Well, I guess I'll keep it specific to restaurants. But for me, our mission statement of our entire company is passionately pursuing the perfect dining experience one guest at a time. And for me, it really comes back to that individual dining experience that our company is is a collection of those individual dining experiences that happen on a daily basis. And so our ability to connect with people on a one-to-one level is what determines our success. And so for me, that's, that's what we're always focused on. We're trying to make a, a business more personal, not less personal. I'm making a mental note and actually gonna make a physical note to follow up on that because I, I would love to dive deeper and how we make it personal, um, how we make it personal. Okay. Um, but let's go back to where 
it all kind of started for you and your family. Uh, your dad was in school in Boston, uh, studying law in the family business burnt down is kind of the story, how it goes. Right. And he went yeah, back. So to the family. It's, it's, uh, it's funny how things repeat history repeats itself because <laughs> my dad and I have somewhat similar stories, although mine, mine doesn't end with, or start with an arson fire. But so, you know, being Rhode Island in the, in the seventies, you know, in a hotbed of kind of gangster activity, um, you know, my dad was, uh, in law school. He was at his father's bar pizzeria where he worked growing up. And, you know, some guys came in that, uh, you know, they thought he was hitting on their girlfriends and maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but they came back that later that night and burned the restaurant Wait, down. So they thought your uh, old man was hitting on the girlfriend or your grandfather was no, my, my dad. Oh, okay. yes. Yeah, my dad being like the you know, hot shot of, that he was at the time. They, uh, they were, they got jealous, I guess, and, uh, thought something was going on that maybe was or wasn't. I don't know. He, 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 he claims that there it was, it was totally, uh, you know, <laughs> innocuous, but you know, so that's, that being said, someone came back later that night and burned the restaurant down. So it kind so. of explains why he maybe felt the obligation to come back to, the, to help out the family because he may have felt responsible for this. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. And so he, um, he, he kind of dropped everything and moved back to Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which is a little kind of town outside of Providence and started the business and um, really took over his dad's bar and restaurant, but it was burned to the ground. So rebuilt it and turned it into a 300 seat uh, prime rib steakhouse and that um, ended up becoming extremely successful. And so he ran that business and expanded it to, um, you know, multiple locations of different kind of ideas, had a catering company and a meat market and, a, you know, another kind of like a fine dining Italian restaurant. So I had quite a bit going on. Uh, and then, you know, as you know, my childhood was developing, the business um, started kind of slipping. And then eventually, um, due to a number of different circumstances at the time, uh, all the businesses went out of business. Uh, 90s, 96. Uh, yeah, 96, 95, something like that. Okay. Uh, then he he kind of regrouped, and my mom became the breadwinner, and you know, be you know, she was a physical therapist, and so she really kind of took the family under her wing and made sure that we could uh, had food on the table, and and then in '97 we moved. Uh, or end of '96, beginning of '97, we moved uh, down to Atlanta. Um, we, just right after the Olympics. Really. Can we spend some time yeah. here real quick? I'm just curious, reflecting back at the time, speaking with your father, did he ever uh, identify the reasons why this, this, this empire that he, that he built kind of didn't work or fizzled out? Yeah, there was a number of different uh, issues. One was like uh, there was a banking kind of crisis in Rhode Island at the time. There was a lot of consolidation of credit unions. And so, he lost a lot of money uh, when those credit unions went out of business. And so, you know, the FDIC insurance is only a certain amount. Um, and so he had quite a bit of money that just disappeared. Okay. Uh, and then on top of that, the businesses were kind of built on like a high food cost model with high volume. And so really when the, when the volume dropped, the profitability like disappeared very quickly. And so um, he's he's very much like a salesperson, you know. He 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 knows how to grow the sales, but he's not an accounting person. So his like ability to manage that business 
uh, when, when the sales kind of disappeared was really not his strength. And so that was probably one of the reasons that it all kind of dissipated. Did he ever give you a big lesson to take away from that? Something that he learned from that, that he passed on to you, man. I mean, most of the lessons that I've learned, I think, uh, come from really a combination of, of, of him and his experience, but then also kind of like the other side of that, which is like the Cornell, like, you know, the business management, all of that stuff. And so, you know, he taught me about the passion and the guest experience and creating value for your customers and, and those things. Um, that are, that are super important, but he also taught me a lot of things like what not to do. Um, and so watching kind of his successes and failures has been probably the most valuable experience I could have had better than any MBA, uh, could have gotten out there. I know it was your dad. I know you love him, but what did he teach you not to do without tearing them apart too much? Cause we yeah. be respectful. Well, I mean, really just the financial management side of it, uh, was, was a, was a big piece of it. Just running a business like a business and um, not kind of just blending it all together, you know, and uh, and kind of really just like those, those basics, you know, and also knowing that like you can't give everything to your customers. If you give everything to your customers, you'll have nothing left. Like you can't put food out there that costs you $5 and then sell it for seven fifty. And, and that I think is, you know, he is a very generous person, but almost to, to a fault. Mm. And so um, where the business just couldn't succeed unless, you know, you sold like, you know, 5 million lasagnas or something at $7 and 50 cents when it costs you five bucks, you know? Yeah. So a lot of what you're, you're sharing is resonating with me because I too grew up in the restaurant industry. I too had a father who was really passionate about creating the experience and he had, he's had to this day has incredible uh, social intelligence and he just knows how to talk to people. He's got the gift of gab and he, and he, he really knew how to provide value, but he provided so much value that he didn't really, he, there was such a little margins. He was giving away so much food. And at the end of the day, you, you, you got to take care of yourself so you can take care of other people. Um, and there's this analogy of, you know, people in this industry have a tendency to want to give, right? But we, we, if you think of a coffee cup on top of a saucer, right? We tend to give before our coffee cup is full. Um, so we never overflow, but we need to get to the point where our coffee cup overflows and whatever spills out onto that saucer is what we were supposed to give. And I love that analogy. And I think you're on the same page. For sure. For sure. And there's ways to give and deliver value um, to the guest experience um, while charging like an appropriate price for it, I think is, is the, is the key. Um, but it's a tricky balance. It's one that, you know, every operator has to decide what that value proposition is going to be for their specific business. And for every one of our concepts, it's different, you know? Um, but it's something that we, um, we analyze and we take a look at and we're, we're more analytical about it than just kind of the, the classic mom and pop restaurant. I want to come back to this. I want to save this for the for later on. Where we're really kind of diving into some of the the big lessons or, or that you can teach us. Uh, but let's move on to the story. Um, your mother kind of takes over supporting the the family temporarily. You guys move to Atlanta in two thousand end of two thousand six or no, I'm sorry, two thousand two or ninety seven. Sorry, ninety six, yeah. ninety seven. Uh, you move to Atlanta and you start opening more restaurants. Take us through that. Yeah. So my. Uh it wasn't long before my dad kind of hooked up with a business partner and for about 40,000 bucks, uh, in 98, 
we opened the first roasted garlic. And so that concept was uh, basically kind of like an Italianized version of all of the dishes uh, kind of that my father had grown up on and that we grew up on in the, in his restaurants. But uh, it was really just like this, this family style, big portion Italian restaurant, really Italian American restaurant. And so that opened in 98 on really a shoestring budget. My father and I were the only two employees when we opened uh, in the kitchen. So every night we were open, <laughs> I, I was, I, I believe like 13 at the time. I was going to say, we're about the same age. Uh, yeah. We graduated college at the same time. Uh, you were in like eighth grade. You're yeah, like I was, middle I was school. in eighth grade. Uh, so <laughs> I, and at the time, we opened, it was, uh, we opened in the beginning of the summer. And so I would come in every single morning. Um, he and I would prep the entire menu together and then serve the cook, the menu. Then he would be too tired to keep going. And so I would clean the entire kitchen by myself. Oh my and, and, and this is where it gets fun. Watch all the dishes from the entire night. service. So, and then like, go to school we the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> No, exactly. And and then have to go back, go to school every day. So Man. Uh, that was, you- that was pretty brutal, but you know, we were able to kind of hire a couple key people after those first, like three brutal months so that, you know, but then I stayed in the kitchen and managed the kitchen. And then he kind of went out in the dining room and, and, and really did his thing, which was connecting with guests and, you know, really uh, telling people all the stories about the family and the traditions and, all that great stuff. And so that business really thrived, but again, it was the same challenges we had that he had with the, with the businesses in Rhode Island where, you know, the, the financials of the, of the business were a mess Mm. and the, you know, the business management side was, you know, HR non-existent and all that other stuff that, you know, becomes important in growing and sustaining a successful business. And so, um, you know, while it was profitable, um, for what we were doing, it, it was, it could have been a lot more profitable. And we, we expanded and uh, he sold some licensing agreements to uh, various people. And we opened restaurants for, you know, like 60,000 bucks and we flip them for a couple hundred thousand bucks. And so there was a lot of, you know, kind of shady deals going on back then. So, you know, we built this kind of, five, six restaurants, I think it was at the time of roasted garlics, all independently owned. And, uh, and, and then things kind of got off the rails and the, you know, the people that were operating them weren't doing a great job. So their sales started declining and the, uh, the partnership fell apart with him and the other partner. And, um, it ended up just really imploding. But so, I mean, one thing going up, like zooming up to 30,000 feet real quick, I've, I'm taking from this versus the original experience was that he was less uh, of a high end restaurant because when the economy, you know, it's environmental when the economy is, the economy starts to tank, it's going to be those luxury, luxurious or luxury type restaurants that are going to be the, the biggest to suffer because people will not go there uh, for special. They just don't have the budget for it. So it seems like your dad kind of scaled it back a little bit this time around. I said, let's just be more of a, a family value forward, like pasta and red sauce, like flour yeah, and water, big, big was, margins. Had that kind of value oriented kind of concepts, even, you know, even back in the day, some, some were high end, but you know, mostly what he did was kind of along those value oriented lines. But uh, in this one, whereas the first one, 
you know, where he was kind of managing multiple business units and different types of businesses and, uh, in Rhode Island. Here, it was more like, you know, we have this one successful thing. Let's try to, you know, quasi-franchise it. And that's really where things um, got off the rails. I'm so, happy you're bringing it here because this is the next thing I wanted to dive into. Um, reflecting back at that, uh, when he started bringing on partners, in your opinion, what was it? You know, there, there seems to be a lack of glue holding it all together. So what what was not holding it together? What, what could have he had done better knowing what you know now? So, yeah, so it's funny you say that because at the time, our thought process was, well, what can we do better the next time around? Well, our, our licensing deals weren't like franchise agreements. So if we were to create a stronger franchise system, maybe that would have alleviated some of those issues. So when we opened Suco in 2003, um, we tried the same thing again, but this time with a more um, rigorous franchise system. And so um, as we'll probably get to in a few minutes, that also had its challenges. And so, um, really what I learned from like this, this first kind of experience was that, um, bringing other people into the business, especially as operators is, uh, very challenging. And, you know, if, if they have capital in the game and equity, then it makes it really challenging for you to tell them what to do, mm. you know, that you, you are telling them the right thing to do. They have kind of their own opinions about it. Yeah. Well, who are you to tell me what to do? This is my money. I'm going to do what I think is right for yeah, the exactly. business. It's my restaurant. Exactly. So the gut feeling that I'm getting right here, hearing your story is that there seems to be a lack of vision, a lack of direction, a lack of mission. People weren't pulling in the same direction. You had maybe five or six different owners all pulling in opposite directions. And basically there was a loss, maybe of a, a, a sense of concept. Exactly. And eventually they, you know, they all went out of business and um, in 2003, we hobbled together kind of like the, whatever we had left, which the opening budget for this original Suga was 40,000 bucks, 50,000 bucks. So we took over a shitty Thai restaurant in Roswell, Georgia. That was, uh, they had literally the person owned, that owned it was living in the back. That's how, uh, shady it was. So it was, it had just gone out of business and it was, uh, it was quite quite the sight to be seen when we first toured it. Let's so. let's take a quick TO right here because uh during this time 03 02 01 or right, um we would have we would have graduated high school in 03. So while your dad yeah. is starting Sugo, you're off in Cornell. Mm-hmm. So how were you were you involved with the business at t- this time or Yeah, I know I was flying back regularly to kind of help manage it and get it off the ground and do all those things that needed to be done. Okay. Uh, and then I, and then while, um, at Cornell, I developed the whole franchise program with all the training manuals and the legal documentation, and then actually sold three franchise agreements. So uh, when you went to Cornell, you had a mission of learning for a specific reason to start this restaurant or to recreate another restaurant group with your family, which I think is really interesting because myself included, I don't think most 18 year olds, 19 year olds go to college with a plan in play to leverage that education. Certainly. I mean, I was, I was, I feel really fortunate because I got the most, I felt like I got the most out of my experience there because I had, I knew kind of in the back of my mind what mattered and what didn't. And so things that didn't matter, I just literally put zero effort into or, didn't pay attention to at all. And then the stuff that really mattered was 
was stuff that I felt like could have a tangible impact on you know the future of the business moving forward. I'm and curious, so, what didn't matter? <laughs> there's a couple of like classes back then that just were total BS and really had no no you know value outside of the ed- academic experience. And so, uh, and I really you know I didn't pay attention to my grades very much, and I, I really just looked at it like I was there to get a piece of paper, but also to to learn as much as I possibly could about the the industry and the business that I wanted to go into. And so, you know, when I initially started there though, you know, I was, I was helping, you know, run the family business and, and create this franchise program. I really thought I was going to get out of it. I thought I was going to go into like banking or consulting, honestly, because I saw what my friends were doing and, and kind of the jobs that were out there for people that were going there at the time. And, you know, six figure salary sounded pretty damn good to me. And when I saw the way my dad had struggled his entire life, I mean, you know, when I got to Cornell, I mean, we opened Sugo, we, we basically spent every dime that we had uh, opening that restaurant. And so and my dad hadn't filed tax returns in, in a number of years. And so I wasn't even eligible to get financial aid. So I went to Cornell and then, you know, my freshman year when my dad couldn't pay the payments, I, I had to go out and find student loans. And so um, I ended up like, being about a week away from getting kicked out of Cornell for not paying and then was able to solidify some student loans, but, you know, racked up, you know, $130,000 in student loans while I was there just to stay and get my education. So, you know, it was, it was tough. I mean, it was not a business that I ever saw as one that, wow, there's really a future here. So that was kind of where, where my head was at. I, I, I loved the business and I, and I wanted to help my family, but I never, I, I really felt like there was an opportunity for me to get out maybe in that, in those days. And then as you know, we developed the franchise program and we sold some of the franchises and, you know, I was working, you know, training those people and kind of putting it all together, um, you know, kind of got closer to that graduation point and, you know, started realizing that, um, I really had a a difficult choice. Either I was going to, the franchises were failing and, uh, you know, the the original business wasn't doing as well anymore. And I could either go home and try to salvage what was left or I could, you know, go and get a job in New York somewhere. And now I I went the more entrepreneurial route um, where I would have some autonomy and be able to kind of have an impact. And so, you know, by 2007, when I got out, we had we had we had up to four restaurants, franchise kind of restaurants. And, so I want to uh, put a quick break here because I, I feel like before we move on, um, you went to Cornell to develop certain skills. So you really focused on a few classes. What was the, what were the big lessons, the biggest takeaways you got at Cornell and maybe any mentors that really had an impact and helped form who you are today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there are a few, um, all in the hospitality school for the most part. Um, there's, uh, Giuseppe Pizzotti, who's like one of the most like well-known guys inside the industry. He, he literally knows everybody all over the world. Uh, that does what we do. And, you know, he opened me up to kind of like this world of fine dining and and in New York and what that was all about. And um, really kind of, I saw the business in a very different light because of him. And then, 
there's uh, Alex Soskin who taught. Wait, time out. What was the light? You said he, he opened up the world of fine dining, but what? how did you see it differently? Well, you know, he would, he had a class where he took the kid, all the kids to New York. Um, and, you know, we, we went to some various restaurants and, you know, he, um, there was a um, class that, you know, that he invested a lot of time in us and like kind of making us see kind of like his passion for fine dining. And I think that that was, you know, I, and I, and I also kind of had, there was a class called guest chefs that he did that he brought in chefs from all over the world and to work with us. And so um, through that, I met Michael Mina uh, who came to Cornell and um, we created, I created a relationship there. Ultimately my brother went to go work for him because of that relationship. And, it, you know, I just saw what people were doing in, in different parts of the, the industry. It was just, so much different and also super successful. And like, you know, Michael Mina was a guy I looked at, I was like, wow, this guy's got how many ever restaurants and he's killing it. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a different way that this can be done. Uh, and so that was part of, part of that for me was, was huge. And then also there was a class called multi-unit restaurant management taught by Alex Suskin that also brought in kind of like executives from the restaurant industry. And I remember, you know, uh, I believe it's Jeff Bell, who is the COO of um, Hillstone or Houston's, which is one of the most successful um, multi-unit restaurant companies there is. And, you know, talking to him about how they operate the company and they would take us, it was only 10 kids in the class. They'd take us out to dinner with the guy uh, that they brought in. And so I got basically like was able to ask, you know, kind of personal questions about how, how they run the operation and how they do it. And so I was just, you know, kind of eating up all that knowledge about how people, some of the best people in the industry. Get specific. What things were you learning during these conversations when they're at the dinner? Like what questions were you asking? Like really, what did they teach you in that moment? Yeah. Well, I, I learned a lot about how like Hillstone creates their dining experiences and the consistency that they're able to do it. And it's very quantitative. So like they have these mystery shops that they do that are like almost purely quantitative. How long did it take for somebody to greet you? How long did it take for you to get from like the host's stand to the seat, from the seat to the initial greet, from the initial greet to the first drink, from the first drink, like so on and so forth. And so, and all of those numbers, you know, uh, essentially line up to like a very specific dining experience that they want every guest to have when they come into their restaurant. And if, and if something is out of order, then they, they're going to hone in on it and they're going to fix it. And, you know, someone from the corporate team is going to go put their shoe up the ass of the general manager in that store. And like, that is how they manage it. It's a combination of, you know, extreme precision with some, with a good dose of fear. Um, and so while that's not my personal strategy when, when operating a restaurant, I saw how successful that could be. Yeah. I uh, think, I think that they're during a, a period, maybe a 15, 20 year period when we started being able to have access to all this data and people were starting to really see the significance of data. The reason why data is important is because you need standards. You need to be something to track uh, and you need to know when something's going wonky. So you can be like, okay, there's a standard that's deviating. We're deviating from a standard. And I think we were in the, like a, a control in command type regimen where 
it was too much focused on the data. And now there's, there's, yeah, now there's a fine balance of, okay, it's important for us to track the data, but we still need people to be who they are. Uh, and uh, I mean, maybe that's a conversation for another day, but what you're saying is we need to track data. Uh, And that's what you learn from, from these people. So you can know when we're straying from standards, right? For sure. Um, And so those were all really great lessons that I learned while I was there. And, And so and I, and I also took a lot of classes outside of the hospitality program. I went over to the Johnson School and took some uh, graduate level business classes. I went to the agriculture school and took some winemaking classes. And so I really kind of created this experience for myself there that was pretty unique and was tailor-made for essentially what I wanted to do um, once I had made that decision that I was going to go back and try to rebuild the family business. So you, you had mentioned one other person, then I cut you off. I apologize. Were you able to finish that thought with, did he come back out? Uh, as you continue oh, on, there was a, a third person, uh, Bruce Tracy, who, uh, was the HR professor. And so he was, uh, really fantastic and charismatic dude and, uh, really helped me, um, in creating some independent studies for me that allowed me to do all the work that I was doing on the franchising program and the, and the operations manual uh, for that through an independent study where he was kind of guiding me in nice. that process. Well, any big takeaways from that experience, like things that really stayed with you and you leveraged going forward? You know, I think part of that was just how to create kind of like a business organization around a restaurant. And so that, you know, there restaurants are kind of like naturally these kind of mom and pop businesses, but they include really all of the things that every kind of large business needs to have, especially today, you know, like there's an IT element, there's a human resources element, there's an accounting element, you know, all of these things, there's a marketing element, social media, you know, all it, it's, it's so much that it can, it can drive you crazy from an operational perspective, especially when you're like a single unit operator. It's like, there's more things for you to have to do every day than you could possibly ever accomplish. And so, you know, when you're a small operator, you find out what are the most important things that I can do on a daily basis to impact positive change in this business. And then as you get grow and get larger, you start looking at those pieces as ways that you can make an impact by hiring someone specifically. Yes. Yes. Listening to you talk, the, the word that was coming or the words that were coming into my head is you're, you're, you are identifying all the lanes you need to be successful. And as you grow, you start identifying people that belong in those lanes, right? Or you hire them on or you recruit them and you got to prioritize where you're strong and focus there because you can't be everything to everybody. Um, great stuff. Uh, so, okay. 2007, you graduate, you come back to the family business and you start changing the direction. What, it was, well, it sounds like you were, I'll kind of give you a landscape of where we were at. You know, we had four franchisees, uh, one failed, uh, in 2007, right before I graduated the other right around that same time. So the two out of the four locations failed. One of the locations stopped paying franchise fees. So they, we were getting $0 out of them. And then the original location in Roswell was losing money. Um, and so we were kind of spinning our wheels the, the year I graduated, we, uh, we had debts with the IRS, the department of revenue, we were bouncing employee checks, we were bouncing vendor checks. We had $30,000 in overdraft fees alone in the first, in that first year, meaning that 
the bank charged us $30,000 to bounce our checks. Um, so just to give you kind of like an idea of where we were, um, you know, and we were, you know, racking up, you know, like debts all over the place. And so it was really about as soon as I got there, you know, the kind of the, the house is burning down. So you have to figure out what are, what are the most important things we can do to get to a sustainable level. Uh, and so for me, that was there, you know, there are two ways in this business to, to create financial solvency is to grow the top line and to control the bottom line. And so it's either cost or sales. And so I knew that the, one of the fastest things that I could do was to control our cost. And, you know, the hardest thing to do is to grow the sales. So I took kind of a, a personal approach to that where, you know, I took, I reopened the restaurant in Johns Creek that had gone out of business by a failed franchisee and essentially just started over, hired a whole new staff, had no managers. So I was doing all of the ordering, receiving, opening, closing, scheduling, servers, cooks, the whole, the whole system. Uh, and so from there, I knew that, you know, okay, so if I, if I handle all the management costs, then that's one cost that uh, we don't have. And then from there, it was about running, you know, the business as lean as possible. So I had like three servers that, you know, saved my ass back then and were just like the most incredible people ever. And, and so really you were controlling. You, so when you said you were controlling the bottom line, the first thing you look at, you're looking at your prime costs and you're thinking I had the most control over labor expense. And that's where you picked up most of the bottom line. Exactly. So labor is that not that number one thing. And then also when your business is struggling like that and you're, and, you know, we were losing, you know, 20,000 bucks a month um, between the two businesses, you have to figure out a way to stop the bleeding in every aspect. And so that includes your personal life as well. And so I put everyone on our family on an extremely tight budget. No one was allowed to eat meals outside of the restaurant. Everyone had to eat meal of food that we bought wholesale. And no one was allowed, people weren't allowed to go to Starbucks anymore. You had to drink all your coffee at the restaurant. Um, you know, we eliminated, you know, as many of the personal expenses as possible. I was living at home with my parents. I didn't have a car. My mom dropped me off at work every morning. Um, it was, you know, as as super tight as you possibly could be because you know i looked at it for every dollar that i spend if we have a 10 percent margin which we didn't have but let's say we had a 10 percent margin we needed to generate ten dollars in sales just to pay for that one dollar worth of personal expense that i just had so it was uh that was kind of my my playbook was let's go in cut the business down to the lowest possible overhead cut our personal down to the lowest possible uh, and then slowly but surely build the sales through um, genuine guest relationships and quality of, of product and service. I want to get into that, but first I got to ask you, uh, you've heard the expression, never go into business with family. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I'm, I'm looking here and just at like the, uh, the CHG team page, we have Stephanie, we have John, we have, uh, you, your father, Nancy, which I'm assuming is what's your mom. Okay. Um, uh, Lauren, uh, yeah, I mean, these are all 
Castellucci last name. So yeah. this is in all regards, a family business. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so, you know, there are positives and negatives. The positives as we're seeing right now is just the, the dedication to the shared, shared mission and values. And also, um, knowing that you have someone that you can completely trust and rely on and, uh, that has your best interest and the best interest of the business in, at mind. And so the other side of that is that if you spend all of your waking hours, you know, in the same building together, making decisions together, you know, if you don't have, you know, defined roles and responsibilities, it can get really nasty really quickly. Uh, for us right now, it's beautiful because we all have such different roles in the business that, you know, and we're, we rarely see each other because we're all at different places at different times. And so we don't really have the opportunity to like get in each other's shit too much because we've all got our own shit going on. And so <laughs> we're, we're trying to do our, the best we can at our specific role. And so that for me is, is, um, is why it's, why it's easier for us. But I can see how, you know, if you had family members in the same building every day, operating the same restaurant, struggling to survive and, you know, improve the business would be very challenging. And, and we definitely, you know, I definitely had some, our biggest challenges family wise in those early days when, you know, we spent a lot of time together, but even then there were so many issues and challenges that needed to be addressed that we didn't really have time to like, you know, argue that much about it. It's yeah. just, and you know, it also helps that I have really intelligent, driven, hardworking family members. Well, I'm happy that you cursed before me. Cause I was just about to respond by saying, I think that whole don't go into family, uh, line or into business with family line is a bunch of bullshit because honestly, if you do have those values or you think you shouldn't go into business with family, it's because you don't want to ruin family relationship, meaning you probably getting into business for purely transactional reasons. Uh, and I think you want to get into business for transformative reasons and who better to go into business with, with the people that you know are going to have your back who aren't going to turn around and say, screw this. This is hard. I'm out of here. Like family, if you, if you have an issue going into business with family, the problem isn't the business. The problem is with your family. I hate to say it. Um, but I think hundred percent. <laughs> yeah. You should know that going into it. Some people should not go into the business with their family because their brother, you know, is a drug addict that is like not very intelligent. So there's an answer for that. Yeah. You know? so, but like if you're fortunate enough to have family that you respect and love and that is intelligent and hardworking, I mean, it, it, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for going there. So let's bring it back to um, now you've kind of plugged the holes. You're not, you know, hemorrhaging money anymore. Uh, where, where did you really start getting the cash flow? How do you start scaling business from there? Yeah. So from there, you know, it was very much like a, 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 a grind. And so, I knew pretty early on that in the suburbs of Atlanta, that behind this shopping center in this location that was really not very good, we were only going to achieve a certain level of success. And then I knew that if we were really going to um, take it to that next level, we were going to need to do something on a, on a much larger scale. And so I, I also wanted to do something creatively, personally, that was you know different from what we had done in the past. And so Sugo was very much a collaboration of my dad and I, uh, and, and with Iberian pig, which was my first kind of original concept. This was really kind of my first idea, something that I wanted to do on my own. And, uh, and so I brought in a, a buddy of mine from Cornell 
that was our first executive chef and partner we had cooked together actually with Brooks, uh, who's our mutual friend there. And we met each other in the Banffy's kitchen and, and so hit it off. And then in 2009, I called him up and was like, Hey, you want to move across the country and start this restaurant with me? And so he agreed to do that. And, uh, Chad and I had like a, a great relationship for five years in the business. And then, you know, he's since moved on, but, um, we, we started that business early on and, you know, I, I found a location on the Decatur square in Atlanta where, you know, this little thriving community that was really on the upswing and, uh, was able to get an amazing location for an incredibly good deal on a, on a 15 year lease that I'm still extremely thankful for. <laughs> Is this with a double zero? No, this was Iberian. Pig. Oh, okay. So okay. In 2009, uh, I, on a, essentially a shoestring budget, I, I was able to get a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars peeled off, um, from the turnaround of Sugo and took that money to open Iberian pig in the location on the Decatur square. And that location was previously a restaurant. So some of the costs were reduced, but I really had no idea what I was getting into because I never really built out a restaurant from scratch. I mean, I'd done these deals before with my dad, but you know, they were really like, let's go in and, you know, take whatever's already here and like put a new coat of paint on the wall and like, you know, put up some weird decorations, you know, like some super mom and pop stuff. But, you know, we were, we were really doing, my goal was to do more with the, with the building. And so I hired a general contractor and a designer and the GC uh, took my $20,000 deposit, did some demo work and then disappeared to Florida. So I was left with $80,000, a demoed restaurant and uh, my designer who came through big time for me, she and I uh, built the restaurant out. I became the general contractor, hired all the subs found people that were willing to work on partial barter payments. So they, they took some cash and then some barter for, you know, essentially future, future what were you sales, bartering? Of, the future sales of the restaurant. So like a percentage. So no, it was around this time. It was the recession. So 2008, 2009, there were these uh, 2010, these company barter companies that were popping up all over the country that were, were exchanged. So I could list my products on that exchange and I would get barter dollars that I could then reuse for like other services and goods like contractors. And so I found barter electricians and barter painters and anybody who's on that system willing to do work for some portion barter. And then I would make it make a deal with these people to, you know, if it was a $50,000 electricity electrical you know contractor, I'd make a deal to do 25 K in cash and 25 K in, in barter. And so what, what um, were you bartering though? Like the, they were giving you the services. What were you giving them in return? Future sales of the restaurant. Okay. So almost, so, okay. Interesting. So it's kind of like a, uh, they're, they're trading their sweat equity for percentage. Of Ponzi scheme. Okay. <laughs> so uh, you gotta get creative really, though. It was, it was, yeah, super creative financing at a time when, the the economy was in the dumps and there were a lot of people out of work looking for work. And so these barter exchanges would essentially be like the clearinghouse for all of these goods and services. And so they were the ones who were keeping track of what was owed and who, who it was owed to and all of that stuff. And so uh, that was one of the ways that I financed the entire growth of the, the business in those first days. So 
was able to get the restaurant open for 80 grand. And I remember I had, you know, 8,000 bucks in working capital. I had overdrawn all my other bank accounts, negative 10 grand. And I had $20,000 in food and liquor inventory that was unpaid for in the restaurant when we opened on a Friday night. Wow. Wow. Talk about rolling the dice, man. Um, So, Oh, there's so much still I want to talk about. I'm just going to say it now. So I, I make sure we come back to these things. I want to talk about eventually uh, how you, this, this seems like the first time around with the roasted garlic, what fell apart was uh, a sense of loss of direction and, and everybody was pulling in different directions. I want to know how you kind of uh, have created a culture where everybody's now pulling in the same direction. I would love to get into that. And I'd love to get into how you got to the point where you removed yourself from the day to day and really started working on the businesses in developing and uh, you know, the, the things an owner should do. I want to get into yeah. those two things, but before we do that, I also want to kind of follow up on this whole idea of how you got cash flow going in the first, uh, uh, Sugo. It's not Sugo. Am I saying that? Sorry. Um, Sugo. Sugo. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you talked about the, how you plug the holes. You aren't hemorrhaging money anymore. What things do you do operationally inside that restaurant that increased sales? I'm curious about that. I don't know if we really got that. No, absolutely. It was a lot of, uh, really guerrilla marketing type stuff. So, Guests would come in the door. I would ensure to collect an email address from them that night when they were dining with us. And then I'd collect all those email addresses, add it to a database, but then also um, send a personal email to that guest thanking them for coming in that night. Mm. I would do that at the end of every night. So a guest would wake up to an email from me at one o'clock in the morning thanking them for coming in that night. Was it a personalized um, email or did you have a personal. segmented list where you blasted everybody the same message? No, it was a personalized email wow. I was sending. How many uh, emails were you sending a night? I mean, I was sending like 40, 50 emails a night. Wow. And man. So those like things like that. I ultimately automated that process. I found somebody to automate that process for me, but it's, but it still had kind of the same personal effect. And so I was, I was doing that. I would buy like, um, I would find somebody who lived in, in one of the neighborhoods nearby because there was a lot of subdivisions, uh, high-end, you know, St. Ives, St. Marlowe, places like that that were these, you know, expensive homes. And so I would find the directory and then type all the people's names and addresses in, into Excel, do a mail merge, and then hand-address, hand hand mail people a letter that was hand-signed by me, inviting them to come in with like a $20 dining credit. Um, so, so I, I would do things like that where I, I would get a very like either guest that would come in and I would do something really personal or I would find a very targeted market of people that I wanted to bring into the restaurant. And then I would, I would do something personal to, uh, to, to get at them and bring them in. And so I would do things like that. And then I also, it was, you know, early days of internet marketing. And so I was doing all sorts of stuff on internet, like whether it was, um, I was on MySpace. I was going on MySpace and, and like spam botting, you know, people <laughs> in the area and telling them to come into the restaurant. It's probably the creepiest thing I've ever done is just randomly messaging people on, on MySpace to come into my restaurant. So there was a lot of stuff, but my, my theory on it was just throw as much against the wall and see what sticks and stuff that sticks would just do more of that. And then if it didn't work, then we just don't do that anymore. But yeah, and then, you know, what you're talking about is just direct mail or just direct marketing, direct mail marketing. Uh, I believe that's the, the on a personal level, yeah. you know, but 
doing it all ourselves. My servers would like sit there during pre-shift and handwrite the addresses and stamp them uh, in during during pre-shift. So I didn't I didn't pay anybody to do it. It's still uh, very very powerful mean of marketing, and uh, I know of two resources that teach it really well. If you're interested, I can link to these in the show notes. Total Royalty uh, was a past guest. Rory Fratt um, is the, the founder of Total Royalty, and this is what he teaches, direct mail marketing. And also um, Bar Restaurant Success also has the inner circle that I can link to in the show notes if you guys are looking to up your direct marketing abilities. So, okay, I think we got clear on that. Uh, what about services? How are you? How Did you improve like guest experience? Was that part of this equation? Yeah. So for me, that was the guest experience is really about the owner going up to their table, asking them how their meal was and really taking part in the, in the service of the restaurant on a nightly basis, making sure that obviously the operation was running smoothly and that people were getting the dishes that they wanted and they were hot and delicious and all that good stuff. But that also that the owner was touching every single table, every single night. So, so it says your success on your website is built on creating experiences for all of our guests that are memorable and exceptional. What does that look like? So I think that what we're trying to do there is take like your traditional dining experience and connect on some other level, you know, other than just, you know, we're feeding you a meal. And so um, it's kind of like a Danny Meyerism, but like connecting the dots and like, finding ways in which we can personalize it yeah. with the guests on a more personal level. And so I think that's, that's really important. Um, and then also, you know, working with our, our chefs to create food and dining experiences that are really great and delicious and exciting, you know? Yeah. And so, okay. We're almost at an hour of our t- agreed upon time, but I'm loving this conversation. Do you have a hard stop? I, I do. I have a hard stop at uh, 45. Okay. So we have 15 minutes together, man. Um, so the two things I want to talk to you about were um, how you transitioned from working on the business to in the business or sorry, in the business to on the business. And uh, what was the other thing? Um, the culture of it. So in like three minutes, I know it's a lot to ask. Like what were the key things that you did to keep the glue together, to keep the culture together? And how did you transition to working on the business? Yeah, so after we opened Iberian Pig, that kind of changed everything. The success of that restaurant just it exploded from day one and we never looked back. And so that created a level of success and also cash flow that allowed me to do a lot of other things. And so opened Double Zero in 2011. Uh, and, and that was, you know, a really challenging opening and one that is certainly I tried to, you know, use the same playbook I did as like, you know, being the general contractor and doing all those things, but I got in way over my head and it ended up costing me, you know, way more than I had expected it to. And so I really took a step back at that moment and said, okay, you know, we've got these three, four restaurants, um, you know, with the, the original Sugo. Um, and then we still even had the fran- the franchisee was operating, but hadn't paid us in, in years. And so I was like, looking at the business globally, like what's going to keep this together? What is going to make this successful when I'm not in the building every day with every single guest and their interactions? And so that's really when I came up with the mission statement and our core values and kind of the system and culture that we have today um, that tries to 
maintain some consistency across all these brands of different types of restaurants. So how do we, you know, get people inspired to make those personal connections with guests? And so that's really what uh, it was all about. And so, you know, the, the mission, which, you know, I mentioned earlier, passionately pursuing the perfect dining experience, one guest at a time, and then core values, which are essentially a set of character traits that we look for in people that support that mission. And so that whole system of, and, and the culture that kind of is surrounding it um, was really built out of those, those kind of early struggles of, you know, how do we take care of guests when we only have like eight guests in the restaurant? Like when I was, you know, struggling to survive or how do we take care of, you know, a couple thousand guests across all of our restaurants on, on, a, on a Saturday night. And so when, once we had reached kind of a certain level of success. So those, those were the big questions. And, and for me, it was really kind of imbuing some of this scrappiness of the early days, what makes a great guest experience. And then trying to figure out a way to to really scale that culture, you know. So you mentioned something that I want to get specific about. You asked yourself, how do you get people inspired to create those personal experiences? How do you get people inspired to create those purposes? How did you do it? Like how 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 do we do that? So I think you know people are inspired when they believe that their work matters to others. So how can we create staff and a, and a, you know, a kitchen and dining room team that is somehow connected to work that matters. And so it's really demotivating and demoralizing when someone, you know, is given a job that is, you know, let's say just like peeling potatoes for, you know, the whole restaurant for the whole week. And so they're just, you know, grinding away on this one task. It's, and, it, and it can be, um, extremely, um, difficult, you know, to, to be inspired to do those kind of those type tasks. But when you realize, you know, you connect it to an, a, a person in the dining room that's experiencing this and, you know, is somehow having a dining experience with us that is touching them in an emotional way, that's when we can kind of get our people excited about it and say, you know, didn't you know that you're having an impact on this one person's experience? Let me tell you about this story about this couple that came in on their first date and now they're getting married years later because of this great experience that we were able to give them on that first that first experience and and how we become a part of their story and, and or or people who've had you know losses in their family that you know when they come in and and they end up you know we treated them so well and so kindly and they had such a great experience that it softened the blow of like a really close personal loss uh, you know, that's when you can connect someone else's human experience in our building to what it takes to create that every single day. And so the more we can connect um, those, those personal experiences that are happening in the dining room to the people that are providing those experiences it, and, and, and explain to them, this is why your work matters. It's because you're having an impact on the lives of other people. Mm. Uh, so Yes. <laughs> I'm loving this dude. Awesome stuff. You're on a roll. Uh, one last question. And I promise we're going to the speed round. Uh, once you discovered this, do you, did you build systems? Like how do you keep people coming every day with that same drive to create these experiences, to know that they can make an impact? How do you remind people that to the point where this happens regularly? That's a great, that's a great answer question. And the answer is 
we need to do more of that. You know, we need to institutionalize it more. We, and, and we do so in certain ways. We do so through our, you know, evaluation process and how we evaluate our employees along those kind of core values. And we do it in our pre-shift meetings where we talk about guest experiences and we relate them back to the, the values and things along those lines. But honestly, it's one of those things where you, you have to almost do it by um, finding the right types of managers that are going to naturally um, imbue the culture into others. And so that's, that's really where it becomes much more tricky is you have to find the right people that are going to be the champions of your culture every day in every interaction they have with every staff member and every customer. And that is where it becomes really challenging. I think even today, we're at the point where we can't necessarily expect to find these people as easy as we once could. And we have to be almost more willing to transform these people. I I think some people are built with that hospitality gene. And I think we can teach emotional intelligence. Some people say you can't, but I think once you train people to, to teach them how the mind works and you can coax it out of them and you can give them values, you can influence people. And we have to be better about influencing people and bringing them to that standard. I think many people aren't willing to, they just want to find somebody, put them in their lane. But today you really got to transform people. You've got to create these people. Um, That's right. This has been a great conversation up to this point. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to bust out a quick final round. To be unstoppable, most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time. It happens, right? Uh, when you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow, you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans, and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member FDIC. Everyone loves processing invoice after invoice. It's the best. (laughs) Not really. Just the sight of a filing cabinet is enough to make you sick, right? It doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It is easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks that stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love, running unstoppable restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call one 
6683006691 mention restaurant unstoppable and receive 10% off your first 3 months and say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with sorcery ap automation we're back the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success oh wow i think it's my ability to I think it's it's an it's an emotional intelligence thing. It's it's the ability to kind of put myself in the shoes of somebody else and, and empathy, kind of where that what they're thinking. You know, yeah. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? My biggest weakness is probably I can be a little overly optimistic. Mm. I I, I <laughs> totally feel that, man. Uh, what's one question you ask or thing that you look for during the interview process? I want to find out what the person is all about at their core. I want to know about their family relationships, their, their friends, like what kind of friend are you? What kind of family member, husband, brother, daughter, sister are you? Uh, I want to, I want to get to the core of people a little bit. And I how think do you, that how do you get to that core? questions that um, will draw on someone's experience of, you know, tell me about a time when, you know, a good friend of yours was in trouble and, and you had to help them out and, how, and what you did and how you did that. Awesome. I love it. What's one challenge, your current biggest challenge today and how are you dealing with it? The biggest challenge I think is to continue to grow our brands in an incredibly noisy, competitive marketplace. So restaurants are growing at twice the rate of the U S population. And so something has to give at some point. And so I think that the, you know, we've had what 12 consecutive negative sales growth quarters nationwide, same store sales growth quarters. So I think that's, that's, you know, the biggest challenge is how do we continue to differentiate ourselves and extremely competitive, noisy environment. You know, I really think the solution there, the, the answer to that, first of all, um, we're, it's an epidemic. It's across the boards. It's everybody. And the reason is exactly what you stated is there's so many restaurants opening. I mean, it's so hard to make an impact when you're competing with so many different people. And I really kind of get irritated with the consultants out there that say, um, if you're having trouble hiring, it's because of you, which there is some truth to that. But at the same time, um, you know, it's really hard out there right now. And even the greatest people I talk to are struggling. So, uh, you know, it's, it's getting tough. It's I reckon. Yeah. Costs are rising. Labor is, labor pool is small to non-existent and sale. There are sales pressures. So something's got to get. Yeah. Point. I really do think that the solution to that isn't in growth. It's an impact. And, uh, instead of thinking growing outward, it's about developing your people inward and really creating yeah. incredible people and not, you know, putting, putting that energy in as deep as possible, because if you, if you want to attract onto yourself, great people, you need to create more great people to attract those people on. Um, we need better restaurants, not more restaurants. Exactly. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to act, a way to behave, a way to present yourself. Absolutely. I think for, it's about some sincere hospitality. Mm. So for us thinking about how to, pair that doing things for others uh, in a, in a sincere, sincere way that you mean it. Um, 
because people recognize when there's a lack of sincerity. I dig uh, it. And I think that it, and it, it's combined with authenticity. So we don't give people a script at the table. You know, we want them to showcase their personality, be themselves, be their most authentic selves. And we believe that, you know, if someone is, is a positive, optimistic person and we can showcase that personality at the table, it creates a level of sincerity and, and impact in the hospitality experience that I think is unique. We've got five minutes. I got four more questions. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within the industry, but uncommon within your restaurant. Oh, sorry. Uncommon. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So one thing that we do is try to um, ask a question of the guest to understand a little bit more about them. Um, on a, on a personal basis. And so, um, we try to avoid the really like scripted stuff. Yeah. You make it personal, get curious, find data, be relatable. We, we, all the kind of the classic restaurant talk, restaurant speak, we try to eliminate that altogether. Mm. Uh, and, And I think that that creates more authentic experience. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Well, my, my playbook, I have like a whole reading list and I teach our managers a lot of them, but the one book that I've taught every single manager since the very first manager I hired back in 2008, uh, is good to great by Mm. Jim Collins. So it's a classic, but for people that are a little bit more kind of academic minded, it's, it's the only truly like empirical study about how to take a business that's good or poor to great. Mm. There's no other example that uses data to back it up um, that I know of. And so, you know, it's, it's a management classic, but for me, it was kind of my playbook, how I turned the business around uh, and I've taught it to every manager since then. And that book is on audible. If you head over to audibletrialcom slash unstoppable and you do not already have an audible membership, you can get that one for free and you're supporting the podcast and you're supporting yourself. Cause I'm telling you audiobooks are freaking amazing, especially for restaurant owner. Do you listen to audiobooks? I do. I have an audible subscription you, and I it's crush. a game changer, dude. It's a, it's a game changer. Uh, share an online resource or tool you leverage. I mean, there's a lot that we use in the businesses. Um, We recently kind of implemented Slack about a year ago, and that's been really great. I love Avero as an analytics app for restaurants. But on a personal basis, I'm I'm like a voracious consumer of knowledge. And so I love Audible, and I love my Kindle. (laughs) And then I also buy hardcover books too. So I have books everywhere. Like everywhere I go, I have something I can pick up and read. I probably have like 12 different books that I'm currently reading or listening to um, in all various stages. So I leave a lot of things unfinished, but it's always like I come back to something, I get inspired, and then I move on to something else. And so for me, it's, it's just about kind of that lifelong process of learning. And so doing whatever I can to, to continue to gain knowledge and Stephen R. Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. The seventh one sharpen the saw, always be learning, always be growing. Uh, and, Oh, there was something else I wanted to say. I totally lost it. 
oh um i'm right there with you with audible in the hard the hard copy whenever i find a book that's like whoa this is a game changer like i want to reference this then i get the hard copy then i listen to it again while i'm reading and i like yeah. you know i mark the book so i can come back to mark it, it yeah, yeah that's exactly what I do. <laughs> all right what's one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant and how are you influencing it you mentioned avero and slack i kind of feel like this is more applicable to yeah. this question yeah, we use a lot of technology in the restaurants now. We've been early adopters of quite a few. Um, one that I'll plug shamelessly, um, I, was a, I was a former investor in uh, Gather, a company that does private dining. It's the second um, time it's been mentioned like on the show. Somewhere. What's that? It's the second time that's been man- or mentioned on the show, so I'm happy you went yeah, there. Yeah, they're good friends of mine, and um, I'm a very happy former investor of that company. <laughs> So I will, I will sing their praises forever and ever and ever. You said that's an event management for private events software. Yeah, private dining, private events management. All right. So I want to go deeper, but we only have one minute left and I want to respect your time. Uh, If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. This is the last question, by the way, all the memories of you, your work, your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of advice, things you know to be true for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Wow. So this is why I send the questions in advance, mostly for this question. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. I didn't even, I didn't look, so I'm going completely blind here, but Wing it, I, man. I think that number one is, uh, owning kind of your, your lot in life and owning the obstacles that come in front of you. So for me, the challenges that you face in life can become part of the story you write about yourself and what you've done. And so instead of getting down on your luck when bad things happen. You have to look at those bad things as a great opportunity to like write this great story about what you're, what you've done and what you're going to do. And I think that, you know, having kind of the grit to be able to, to own those obstacles is, is, is key. So that's definitely um, one big one for me. Number two, Uh, number two, you know, it's important to recognize what makes you kind of happy in life. And I think that whether it doesn't matter what amount of money or possessions at the end of the day, there are two meaningful things. There's meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And so dedicating your life to having those two things, I think creates the most amount of happiness. Another reason Um, why I think the whole work life, um, or working with family is bullshit because if you can combine those two things and have those two parts of your life conjoined, then you, you get to experience both of them at the same time. Um, exactly. All right. Number and three, so I think that Sorry, meaningful work and meaningful relationships um, are, are key. And then I think that um, kind of that third piece uh, is really an offshoot of the second one. And it's about kind of how to find uh, meaningful work and uh, they've found, and this is in my work, this is a study that there are two things that contribute most to um, having positive work experience is one, having autonomy, a level of autonomy over what you do. Uh, and number two, that it's challenging. So um, work that isn't challenging, but is autonomous is, is not 
success for a meaning, meaningful work um, life. And likewise, if you have no autonomy and it's very challenging, it's miserable. You're going to burn out. And so you, you have to have those two things in order to have meaningful work life. And so I think that, um, you know, the restaurant business is just one example of something that I could do that would give me that. But if you can't find that, you, you really should try um, because you're not going to be happy otherwise. Man, this has been an awesome conversation. Let the folks at home know how can we connect? How can we follow? Uh, what's the best way to maybe even join your team if we want to be a part of what you're doing? Yeah. So uh, you, the easiest way is email me directly, which is uh, Federico at chgrestaurants.com. So that's the easiest way to contact me on social, uh, Instagram at fredcast3. And that's something that I do check. Um, and then everything else is pretty much noise. So, And this is episode 486. So head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 486. I'll link to how to connect with Federico and uh, a, a summary of today's discussion. So it's a link to the books and services recommended. And one last thing before I say goodbye, call somebody out. Who's one person you admire in this industry and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today? Man, there's so, so many that I admire, but um, one that I'll just throw out because the the personal relationship is Michael Mina. So Michael Mina, man, that's in San Francisco. I would love to make that happen. Um, Look out, Michael Mina. I'm coming after you. And uh, man, Federico, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your advice, your mentorship. There is no questioning. My friend, you are unstoppable. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable, and it was a great one. Uh, Fred Castellucci, man, some great advice shared in this conversation. I think the three big takeaways for me, first and foremost, um, you know, you've got to have people pulling in the same direction. Sounds like when he started the roasted garlic with his dad, there was a lack of vision. There was a lack of mission. There was a lack of similar values. And you had all these different people that were just buying in and they had different expectations. They had different visions of where this thing was going. And when you have that happen, everybody just pulls in opposite directions. You need everybody pulling in the same direction. And it seems like that might've been uh, what was going on here. People just weren't, you know, going in the same direction. Uh, secondly, you got to collect that data. And uh, we learned this from one of his, his mentors when he was at Cornell. And you, when you collect this information, this data, you can track where your business is going. You can, you can see where you, you can create standards. Now you have this information. You know what standard you can, you can see if you're deviating from those standards. But you also have to remember that you can't be ridiculous when it comes to this, these standards. You can't restrict people. Like he mentions at the end of the show, people need that sense of autonomy. They need that sense of independence, that, that, that sense of creativity, that sense of growth. And when you restrict it too much and you get too re- too restrictive uh, and you control every last detail, then you just make a soulless operation. So it's good to have that data to track information, but you also want to create that, you know, that, that, that trust and track uh, culture, not that command and control culture. Uh, Then lastly, eliminate as many expenses as possible. So when he was trying to turn the sucker around when he graduated from Cornell. Uh, I, I love this, the grit and the determination of this guy of, you know, realizing that you can control two things, uh, money coming in 
in money going out and you have better control early on of the money going out. So when you're starting a restaurant, what does your life look like? What are the things that you that you have in your life that you need? Can you get rid of that stuff? Like how how minimalist can you get uh, and make the things the money going out? Um, you know that hemorrhaging patch it up as much as possible. Uh, have exactly what you need to survive because things are going to get rough. And if you don't have money going out, that means you can put more money back into the business and you can scale the business. So if you're going into an operation and you have this knowledge, you'll be much better off in the long run. Uh, so get as lean as possible, as soon as possible. If you want to be successful in this industry, great stuff, guys. Uh, like always, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com, Instagram and Twitter, Eric Catchatori, Facebook slash restaurant unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me what your challenges are. I'll get an expert on the show. We'll learn together. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. But the best way to support Restaurant Unstoppable, the best compliment I can get is knowing you're sharing this sucker. If we're going to make an impact, if we're going to transform the industry, we need people to know that this knowledge is out there, that it exists, that we're sharing this information, and we all need to have access to it. So share this sucker. And then the last thing I want to let you guys know, uh, I'm going to start doing one-hour one-on-one calls. So if you're interested in... um, having a chat with me. Maybe you want to do some brainstorming. Maybe uh, you're opening a restaurant and you want to know the best places to get information. Uh, I can help you expedite where this information is. I can help you connect with the right people. I can uh, bounce. You can bounce your ideas off of me. I can, you know, I can help out. I've talked to almost 500 people. I can help you out. So if you want to set up a one-on-one, one-hour chat with me, Head over to the show notes. I'll have a banner or a, a logo in the show notes. You can click on that sucker and you can schedule that right to, right now as soon as you want to. Let's get on a call. All right, guys. That is all for today. I love you all. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>